In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where we're doing a little bit of a different episode today. So, once again, I am joined by guest Oliver Reason, who appeared in uh, my episode on Plan 9 from Outer Space, as well as He-Man, Masters of the Universe, that brilliant film, and also uh, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. And what I've done this time, because I've picked so many films that I have nostalgia for, I've actually allowed... Ollie to pick the film this time and he's gonna sort of take a bit of a leading role in this episode so Ollie first of all welcome uh, thank you thank you for having me back on again yeah I, I just wanted to say uh, I still have not forgiven you for putting me through those particular films in questions so I'm very glad that it was my turn to try and introduce you to something from my childhood <laughs> and uh, what is the film this time? Well, so um, I had a couple of films in mind, and I know I proposed them to you before we did get down to watching it. The vast majority of them you had actually seen, which wouldn't have been any fun. No. But there was one in particular, a very dear film to my heart as a child, that uh, you hadn't watched. Um, so the, f- the film in question uh, is a work of Don Bluth. And Pete? Yes. Have you seen any of Don Blue's films? I don't know who he is, so let's find out. Okay, so I'm just going to have a quick look at what the filmography is for him, because I'm pretty sure you must have seen something okay. that Don Blue has done. Um, Secret of Nim. Never heard of it, never seen it. American Tale. Nope. Land Before Time. Heard of it, not seen it. All, all Dogs Go to Heaven. I think I've heard of it, but not seen it. Anastasia. Again, I think I've heard of it, but oh, not seen it. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm yeah. I mean, I'm really surprised that you've not seen any of those films because basically the entire Don Bruth library was basically my childhood, you know, like film animations. So, um, 
The one that we decided to have a look at today was the one that I was essentially addicted to as a small eight-year-old, which might have been a bit too young for these, uh, Titan AE. Um, yeah, so probably first things first, uh, Pete, what does AE stand for? Well, I, when I was reading it, it, the way the writing was, I thought it was saying Ari, so I assumed it stood for religious education. You are correct. It's Titan Religious Education. That's... <laughs> <laughs> All right, so come on, what's your two, what does AE stand for? Come on, can you guess? Have it, a think about the film. Okay, so you've got BC, you've got AD. Is it like the next one on from that? Like after Earth? It's after, it's after Earth. Earth, you've got it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you did it, you put it together, well done. I'm actually impressed with myself. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's conveniently how the film starts, isn't it? So, um, yeah, Tyana AE, set in the distant future, nearly 1,000 years from now. Um, and centres around uh, a, a small band of people trying to save the human race from extinction at the hands of an, um, evil aliens, the Dredge. And in order to do that, they must find the ship known as the Titan, which which potentially holds the secret to humanity's survival. So, unlike a lot of a lot of films, this one kind of starts with the death of Earth. Yeah. I will admit, um, I remember you saying, like, um, when we watched He-Man, Master of the Universe, that it just kind of started and it felt like it was halfway through. Yeah. It's kind of how I felt, like, with the beginning of this one, to be honest. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a good introduction to the stakes, I would say, in terms of, like, you know, you you know what's, what's actually happened, but it's a lot to take in in the first, like, few minutes, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, I think it's also the fact that all of the characters feel like it feels like there's, there's either been a film before this one where they've established the characters mm. or like, you know, the film's been going on for half an hour and we should know these characters by now. Because you've got this emotional what goodbye with his father who's yeah. going off on this mysterious mission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just it just it just feels like we should know these characters better already. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, what did you think of the opening sequence then? How did you find it? Overall, I, as much as I do mock it, like I... I didn't mind it. I thought it was a good opening. It did set up, you know, like where we are in the film. It it sort of introduced the the art style, I thought, as well, which, well, I think we were saying as as I was watching, like, I think I I, I was sort of saying, oh, kind of reminds me of Prince of Egypt. Mm. The the 2D element element of it does kind of remind me of that a little bit. Okay, well, that's very convenient. Okay. Because uh, the studio that created this, Fox Animation Studio, actually did some final animation work on the Prince of Egypt. Oh, okay. I, yeah. yeah. So, very convenient. Yeah. <laughs> so, you can sort of see that sort of 2D style that they were going for in this within the Prince of Egypt animation as well. Yeah. I I, I think I'm not alone in saying I quite like that art style. Mm. I think it is very undeniably sort of like late 90s, early 2000s, but mm. there's nothing wrong with that. It's no, well, charming. Yeah, I, I think it's charming, and I think it's an art style that is quite sorely missed, really. Yeah. Because compared to a lot of the the three D animated stuff that seems to be very generically designed nowadays, this just has a certain charm and feel to it. And you you take one look at it, and you know what it is, don't you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's it has a unique style, and you can place it straight away. I will say, the animation style in this film as a whole. I've got mixed feelings about though the, mm-hmm. the implementation of soft because they they basically implement like a three D effect in some areas. Yeah, and I get what they were doing, and I think for the most part it does work. I think overall I do like it, 
but there are I mean, you like you were saying when we're watching it can be a bit jarring at times and i think it does date the film a little bit as well at mm. that point especially when we're talking about the dredge yeah like i skipping forward a bit admittedly but i i get that they made them 3d to make them stand out a bit to make them a bit different and i can appreciate they tried that but it kind of did also feel a bit like uh one of those films you get on you know like the the very late channels on like a free yeah, box yeah. that are made for about two p. <laughs> the made for TV films, yeah, like with that sort of like CGI style, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that was very reminiscent of the times because this was two thousand. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, it's uh, twenty three years ago, Pete. <laughs> it's, it's that's but quite scary. I, I think <laughs> I think the thing is, so like when you get two D animation. It's not that it doesn't age. If you watch like a, a Disney film from the 50s, you can tell it's from the 50s. But I mm. think it ages at a much slower rate than yeah. sort of 3D animation. And Absolutely. I think you get that weird disparity between one part of it's aged quite a lot and the other part hasn't aged so much. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it is. I'm, I'm not sure, but that's kind of what I was getting from it anyway. No, I think yeah, that's a, yeah, a very good way of looking at it. Yeah, I think um, 2D doesn't age nowhere near as much as 3D animation does because... Ultimately, with 2D, you're going for a very particular style, whereas, especially for a lot of the the 2000s and 2010s, CGI seemed to be going for, like, a pseudo-realistic look. Yeah. Like, if you yeah. think of, like, the old Shrek films and things like that, they're going for a realistic look with a cartoony aesthetic to it. Yeah. And, uh, like, looking back at Shrek, which is a masterpiece. Oh, it's an amazing film. Um, it... It is dated. Like, you yeah. can see it in the style because um, they're having to use computer technology from the time. Mm. So, yeah. However, again, we might be skipping forward a little bit. <laughs> that might happen a lot. Um, one thing you said during this film is you, you really like the music. Mm. But you did notice that it does feel like they haven't written any of the music themselves. Mm. They've just gone, that sounds cool. <laughs> I think you can liken that to Shrek a little bit as well. Shrek. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, Shrek has an amazing soundtrack, but most of it is just popular songs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they. Uh, I think those ones are even more timeless now, though, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, obviously our opening is... Uh, a, um, we were introduced to a young Kale Tucker, mm. uh, who whose father uh, is the lead on the Titan project. And at this point in the history, uh, somehow we have no idea what happened prior to this, but Earth is about to get blown up by the evil energy aliens. And Kale is put onto a ship to escape the planet, but his father can't go with him, as he needs to fly the Titan away from Earth, the final hope for humanity. And that's how we're introduced to the story. Yeah. So... Planet Earth explodes in a very, very nice CGI effect. And then the title card like bursts in out of space. And here we are, Titan AE. And then, what was it, 15, 14, 15 years later? 15 years later, because I remember he's, he's four in the introduction, and I was like, oh, he must be 19 now. So, yeah, yeah. 15 years. Yeah. And that's uh, 15 years later. We're introduced to Kale Tucker, voiced by Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Matt Damon. <laughs> On uh, uh, now... Uh, living his life on a space station in deep space. So, um, yeah, now we're on the space. Uh, now we're uh, on the asteroid space station where Kale's working as what looks like a scrap miner. Yep. Um, and this is kind of how the main part of the story kicks off. Mm. So, the thoughts on this this sequence then? What do you mean the the sequence when he's grown up? Yeah. So this first scene is obviously based on the asteroid station, which is him living his rather mundane life as a worker. Yeah. So this is where um, he's about to be introduced to a man called Joseph Corso. Yeah. Where 
he tells him that he is the only one who can find the Titan. Yeah. Um, first things first, I, as an older version of Kale, I like the way they introduced him, like, kind up the ship. Mm-hmm. I thought that was visually quite striking. Yeah. And it kind of showed, well, I guess he was like, what, like a space scrap man or something. I'm yeah, yeah. Sure. That's yeah. what it seems to be, yeah. Um, one thing I did notice, you know when he's trying to get into the space station afterwards? Is it? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to, like, get in that way rather than waiting here. Yeah. I swear, well, not only did he endanger his life by doing that, it must have taken longer. <laughs> like... Was in... Oh, so what, when he flies, tries to go to the docking port in order to get in that way? Yeah. Yeah, and then somehow crashes into a ship that he probably should have seen coming from a long way away because they're in space. Yeah. And you can kind of see stuff coming what? from a long way in space, can't what? you? What I did find quite funny, though, was he bangs into this thing on the window mm. and he sees a woman through. And immediately, like, okay, so that's one of the main characters there. He's just happened to bump into their ship and they're going to fall in love at the end. Yep. So that thing you just figure out, like, instantly in that one second. Yeah, so instantaneously, uh, we're introduced to... Uh, that's Akima, isn't it? The pilot yeah. of the ship. And <laughs> you immediately go, there you go. Love interest. <laughs> I also love that he's, like... Been set up. He's splattered against the side. Yeah. Presumably she knows they're looking for a human. Like, yeah. she knows the plan. And her voice to go, I'm just going to close this door down and trap him outside so he might potentially die. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, she doesn't know him at this point. There could be other humans on the station. Not many, though. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose we know there's at least three because they see two others in the line. Yeah. But, yeah. So, um... Kale, later on, after having some very inedible lunch, uh, is ambushed by a couple of aliens who he bumped into before going in. Yeah. And this is where Corsco comes along to save the day. Mm. Uh, Ties up the aliens and then proceeds to have a conversation with Kale about how he needs to come and save the world. Yes. Or save the human race. So what if if a guy just turned up (laughs) out of nowhere and went, hey, do you want to come on a mission where you're possibly going to die and the stakes are really high, and very bad things could potentially happen to everybody. What would you do in that situation? I'd probably think he was insane. Yeah. To be honest, I wouldn't go with him. <laughs> so luckily, unlike a, a lot of films of this style, the the um, the actual main character doesn't agree to go with him, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Initially, anyway. <laughs> so, um, obviously, later on, uh, he has an encounter with Corp... Corso again, back in the cafeteria, and finds out that Corso knows his, his guardian, I think the guy is. No, so, um, yeah, so they end up back in the cafeteria, and Corso um, basically shows Kale what he needs to do by grabbing hold of his special ring that was given to him by his father and creating a little map on his hand. And um, this is enough to kind of get interest sparked, and then the villains turn up. Yes, the... The villains, like, I, yes. <laughs> I'm not sure why. Yeah. yeah. So, at, I mean, at this point, you could probably safely assume that if the uh, if Corso was able to find Kale, then these other aliens potentially may have been able to as well. Yeah. Because they could have found different ways to be able to track them down. Obviously, it's very convenient that they get there at exactly the same time as one another, but then plot and action needs to happen, doesn't it? Mm. I think it was at this point that I, I, I think I mentioned it when we were talking, this was when I first found the animation quite jarring. Mm. Like when they turn up and they're 3D in a 2D animation. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So then um, that's when we get our first action slash chase sequence. 
then trying to get away from the evil dredge yes. uh, out of the ship. Um, so that involves uh, climbing through some air ducts, having a weird cockroach alien get splattered all over a wall. This is a PG film, yeah. by the way. <laughs> and then um, hijacking a ship in order to escape the space station, hmm. which eventually involves them blasting through an airlock and floating into deep space as the window starts to crack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in order to escape, they have to... And break their way out of the ship and float through space without spacesuits into their own spaceship. Yeah, they did. They did a Princess Leia in uh, the Last Jedi. <laughs> so, um, what do you think of that? <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> so it's funny you say that though, because for a very long time, that's what a lot of people would say okay. is that that looks very, very stupid. That would never work. But apparently. That's totally feasible. No, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, apparently it is. So, where he says exhale, yeah. it's because he's told him to get rid of all the air in his lungs. Right. Because apparently if you're exposed to a vacuum, the first thing that happens is all the, all the air tries to escape out of your body. And mm. the more that you've got in you, the more it's faster it's forced out of your body, which can damage you. So... As long as he's completely emptied his lungs, he's not going to have quite as much damage as he would do otherwise. And then... Apparently, if you're exposed to a vacuum, mm. you can actually survive in a vacuum for at least several minutes. But I thought space isn't space like the coldest thing. Like, don't you just like immediately freeze? No, it's not. Um, it's not to a temperature which would immediately freeze you. It's um, it's not as cold as you would expect it to be. <laughs> it's still incredibly cold, yeah. But it's uh, it's not an environment where you would instantaneously die. You don't want to be there. No, you don't want to be there without a ship. But yeah, it's not it's not like uh, Total Recall where if you're exposed to it, you explode. <laughs> Excuse me, I I have I have watched a enough films and analysed enough films to this point to know they are a hundred percent accurate. <laughs> Everything that happened in Total Recall is a hundred percent accurate. Yeah. <laughs> I, if I'm honest, I I will admit I don't know enough about space to disprove <laughs> this. So sure. <laughs> Now, I was just watching your reaction in that and just found it really funny that you were just like, okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, yeah, this allows them to escape where he, he eventually is introduced to the rest of the crew. Yes. So, once again, we get another scene that heavily implies another romantic involvement between Kale and Akima. Right. Where she's doing surgery to repair, to fix the wounds that he's got. Oh, yeah. And he's butt, butt naked floating around in zero G. Yeah. <laughs> Going to see a bit of cartoon ass. Oh yeah. yes, God, do you love the bit of cartoon mum? <laughs> so we're introduced to Preed, who's a bit, is a bit of a dodgy character. Mm-hmm. Uh, he looks very shady. Potentially, someone who looks like that he can betray them in the future. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, possibly. He looks a bit like a hyena. Yeah, in a bit of a way. I think they, and um, you probably find that a lot of them um, have been based around animals. Yeah. He looks like a bat, I would say. A bat, okay. <laughs> sort of, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so we're first introduced to Preed, who um, eventually takes Kale to have a look around the rest of the ship. And then we're introduced to Stiff. Or Sif. Sif. Or Stiff or Sif or Sif or Sif. That character. Yeah. Uh, so, a very kangaroo looking alien uh, with. Interesting legs. I don't know. I, I like the design. It's yeah. very weird. It's incredibly weird. And I guess you know, there are aliens, so they can kind of go any way they want with it. Could you imagine trying to put jeans on there, though? I'm just trying to think where she'd buy them, yeah. to be honest. 
I know. Uh, but yeah. You're not exactly going to be able to go to the Gap and just buy a pair, are you? <laughs> I I love the idea of her turning up. Like, she's got to go to a wedding or something. She goes to a tailor and you just watch the tailor's face just drop. Yeah. She walks oh, God, here we go again. <laughs> Another one of those. The Alien Tailor would be a great series, actually. It's just this guy who has to struggle with all of these different All the shapes. crazy anatomies of yeah. them, yeah. So yeah, introduced to Sif, who um, is the weapon specialist on the ship, and gets uh, introduced to her personality by her shouting, raving, and throwing things because she drops tools on the floor and threatens to murder one of uh, one of the other crew members. Yeah, and after that, we're introduced to Goon, the frog toad-like man. I yeah, who is a uh, they're like communications or local genius he scientist, isn't he? Kind of reminded me of a Disney character a little bit in terms of like the design. Yeah. Okay. I don't know why, just a little bit. In what, what parts of it? I, I think it looks like he should have been in Treasure Planet or something like that. That's a good point, actually. Like, Treasure Planet animation is incredibly reminiscent of this, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, so um, uh, he's Goon is obviously the specialist and the scientist, and he's the one that helps them to identify the map on Kale's hand, Yeah, which is leading them to a planet. I thought with Goon, like, there was a good character there. I would have liked to have known him more. <laughs> I, I felt like I probably would have liked him if we just gotten to know a bit more about him. Yeah. So we've now obviously been introduced to the, the whole crew member in a, a very um, Firefly esque like, setup. Yeah. In terms of every single, they've got lots of different crew members in almost like an ensemble style cast, and um, this eventually leads them onto the mission to the planet to I to find out what's hiding there. Yes. Yeah. So, I can't remember the name of the planet that they go to. Hydrogen planet. No, hydrogen planet, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, getting to the planet, they need to try and find this particular alien species who can show them what's on the map. Yes. And I don't know how they know that. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, because he's got the map on his hand. Does yeah. the map lead to this planet where, and say, you've got to talk to this species? Yeah. It's a bit weird. It's, it seems, yeah. So it's odd that the map that's meant to show them where the Titan is hiding needs to be decrypted by an alien species who no one actually has any contact with, according to the yeah. people on the ship. Also, who don't appear again in the film. No, they don't. And yeah, they're not. They're not exactly been hinted that they created the ring or created the map or anything. Like it's literally just seems to be a scene for them to go and do something. <laughs> I sort of do wonder with scenes like this. Like I, I said, like, during the thing, it felt like this film had a lot of writers. Yeah. Which apparently it did. Um, but I, I also do wonder if the film was kind of, like, piloted by the visual effects rather than the story. Because, mm -hmm. like, you know, like, again, it was very visually striking. But, again, yeah. it felt sort of pointless. Yeah, it's it feels like a bit of a pointless excursion. And while they have a... Um, yeah, while, obviously... You know, it's it's quite a nice set piece. Mm. I'm not entirely sure what it adds, to be honest. Um, besides kind of making the plot a bit more convoluted towards the end of it. If I'm honest, like, I, I kind of felt like a large part of this film felt like it's sort of almost been written by a child. You know, like when a child's just going on a tangent, like, yeah. you know, and then they're in space. And then there's these trees, but they blow up as soon as they get hit. And then they're on a spaceship, and then there's, like, these aliens. And it's just kind of, it just felt like that. That's a, that's a very good point of looking at it, yeah. It feels like someone's got, like, several different stories and just bashed them all together and taken the, it's like, this is the coolest bit of the yeah. story. If it felt like, you know, George Lucas, like, he's yeah. got a lot of ideas, but he needs someone to sort of 
Yeah, just keep him keep focused. Keep him focused. That's George, kind... Come on now, George. George, stay focused. I know George Lucas isn't anything to do with this, but it <laughs> felt like very unfiltered George yeah. Lucas. <laughs> Maybe he was uh, hiding in there somewhere. Yeah. I should have come out and gone, well, I, you never guessed what, <laughs> Peter. George Lucas had literally nothing to do with this film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, they... The aliens on this planet are able to show them how the map functions, mm-hmm. which leads them to, uh, to identify where they need to go. Points to a nebula far off. Um, at which point, they are ambushed by the dredge again. Yes. I don't know how. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we get we get an escape. We get a weird escape sequence yes. where they are um, picked up and flown around by the aliens that live there. Yeah. Many of them get brutally killed. Uh, we're getting vaporized by lasers. And they're flown all the way around the islands, uh, over the water, over the the giant hydrogen bubbles, mm. to be dropped back at their boat, despite the fact that they could have been flown by these aliens back to their ship anyway. Yeah. <laughs> they basically just did a one big circle and dropped them back off at the start again. I, for no real reason. I do love these aliens, like, you know, thing because like you say, they flew them off, they helped them for some reason, we don't know why. So these people landed on the planet, they helped them. Aliens came down, killed a load of them, blew up a load of part of their planet. And then they these heroes just left. So these aliens are there going, bye, I guess. Yeah. Well, well, thanks, guys. <laughs> I don't know what their, their best, these aliens' vested interest is in helping them. Like, you know, there's it, it just it just seems like a very weird plot point. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, in the process of them trying to escape on the boat, which they didn't need to because they could have been dropped off by the aliens yeah um kale is pushed out of the boat because he tries to fire a rocket launcher <laughs> falls in the water and is uh sucked up by one of the dread ships yes and they've flown away um so he's abducted abducted by the dread ship and taken back to the mothership to meet the the evil queen i yes. guess <laughs> we don't really find out that much about to be honest i don't i don't think she's really meant to be a character i think they're more just like a plot point than anything yeah. in this um but the the whole yeah so they have, they're abducted and taken to the ship and bearing in mind we're not even halfway through the film yet mm. and this seems like an event that would normally take place sort of a bit later in like some of the more closing acts where the hero takes a a dip and a downturn before yeah. being able to rise back up again. It, yeah, it, it, it didn't really... It felt all very random, Yeah, I think, would be the way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's... One, I've no idea how they were able to track them to that planet in the first place. Yeah. Like, there's... there's You know, they found this planet because the map was pointing them there, and at this point, the dredge don't have the map. And it seems like they had to write this in so that they could have the dredge still be a threat as the film goes on to make sense that they are tracking them. Yeah, it felt like, as you were saying, you know, during the Dial of Destiny yeah. episode we did, that the en- the enemies just conveniently seem to know where the heroes really need at to be. times. Yeah. yeah. They just happen to be in the same place at the same time. Yeah. It's like the scene where they somehow track the boat all across the Mediterranean <laughs> and go to the exact same port yeah. that the heroes end up in. Mm-hmm. This is just that. They go to the same planet that the heroes are just very conveniently. Sort of like worse though, because at least Indiana Jones is set on the world. This is the universe. Yeah, when we have no <laughs> idea of the distances of this at all. You know, they, they could be traversing like millions of light years as far yeah. as we know. So, um... Yeah, the aliens get hold of Kale and um, 
are able to discern the map from him so that they know where the Titan is as they want to destroy it, stop the fet of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they uh, they decide to just jettison Akima into space. Yeah. Conveniently in a pod. <laughs> yes. For some reason. Um, whereas wouldn't it just be more convenient just to kind of shoot her out into space with no, no pod anyway? Well, I don't even get right. So they, they shoot her off in a pod mm. and then she's just rescued. Right. <laughs> You're getting on to the next scene. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, what's the point in that? Like, why Why did they just not have her... Like, why did they not just have Kale get, like, captured and her just stay on the ship? Because... It, once again, it's another thing that seems totally redundant, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, um, and additionally, the fact that she gets shot out in a pod and then just... She, in the next scene, obviously, they've been able... The crew of the of the spaceship have been able to track her down, obviously using maybe like a tracker or something like that. And somehow her pod is in like a cell yeah. in a slave complex on a spaceship. And I have no idea how it got there, really. It's, you know, it's quite odd, yeah, so to say. Um, because... You know, she she's just recovered and rescued, which in the vastness of space, you know, in a, a, an infinite universe, she just happens to have been picked up and taken to this little colony and chopped in this room, still in her pod. Yeah. It just seems very jarring. And it just reminds me of uh, the quote from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where they talk about the, the chances of being picked up in space, uh, because space is really big. It's um, the chances of being picked up within that time are two to the power of... <laughs> Two billion seventy nine million six four hundred sixty thousand three hundred forty seven to one against. So you're telling me there's a chance? Yeah, <laughs> it turns out there is. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's uh, yeah, it's it just seems very very convenient, and I guess it's just for the plot to continue happening. But as you said, I don't know why they she couldn't have just stayed on the ship. Like it, it doesn't really add anything. Yeah. Apart from having a scene where Sif kicks the kicks the living hell out of another alien. If, if I'm honest, I. I don't feel this whole part really adds anything anyway. No. Because, like, let's say, okay, fair enough, you can argue that Kale has a bit of a change in attitude. After. Yeah. But they could have done that by just having a conversation on the ship. Like, maybe, like, getting a bit of empathy there, getting a bit of character development that way. Yeah. And it feels like that would have made more sense. Yeah, they could have done that. Like, yeah. And uh, they they probably would have... They could have done a, probably a better way of making it so the aliens know yeah. how to get to the location. But... No, they went a very convoluted way instead. Mm. Uh, and then, obviously, um, in order for the plot to continue, Kale escapes. Yes. By using his fingers to open the door. Again, like what? <laughs> We're thousands of years in the future. Yeah. Earth has been destroyed, mm. and there's aliens everywhere, and they can't make a decent cell to hold Yeah, someone. these are an energy-based aliens who have not been able to create a cell that can hold a dude, despite the fact that their whole reason for existing seems to be, I want to kill humans. Yeah. Additionally, I don't know why they're keeping him alive. Uh, you know why they keep him alive? Because so, the so the plot can happen. <laughs> it's, it's all just very... Like, I know they destroyed the Earth, but they're rubbish villains. Yeah, they're, they're not doing a very good job, really. They, they set up, they're they basically setting up their own demise by keeping him alive and not just shooting him when they could. Yeah. So he's able to escape, and he gets onto one of the dredge fighters and somehow is able to pilot the ship, despite the fact it has no resemblance to a conventional spaceship at all. Yeah. 
Uh, at which point he's picked up by the crew of the Valkyrie and everything's happily ever after. How wonderful. <laughs> the end. Yeah, at the end. Anyway, what do you think of that? <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I wasn't a huge fan of it. <laughs> I, I, I felt like it was almost there just to sort of make the film longer. But yeah, it seemed like padding. I, I also do just wonder if there was a lot of appeasing in this film. Or it was like, well, like one writer had come up with an idea... And then just to sort of like keep them happy, they just sort of left it in, even though it was detriment to the film. Yeah, it seemed like, um, you know, you can see the effect of like having multiple writers in there. And it's like certain writers wrote different sections. Yeah. And then they had to almost like fill in the blanks in a way. And I don't know if that's exactly how it happened, but that's what it feels like. It feels like there's a few scenes in this that are like just trying to fill in the gaps. Again, like... I know I keep going sort of like I was trying to become a teacher at one point mm. and I was working in the school and it feels like this would have been a lesson if I was trying to teach children how to do a storyboard to make structure but they yeah. weren't understanding and they were like so this bit we've just got like the, the earth exploding Whoa. then this bit we've got they, they get captured and this bit yeah. it's just like it's like they haven't understood how to structure I mean uh, it's, you know it's like this it's like the story of a very energetic child who's like, and then, and then this happens and the world explodes. And then, and then, um, and then he's cutting up ships with a big laser in space. <laughs> <laughs> so, they're at, this is now, now they're almost in, in the race to try and get to the Titan in time. Yeah. Uh, which has um, a very good starship flying montage where they fly through... Um, yeah, fly through space yeah. and go through the gas fields with the uh, the flying ghosts around them. Yeah, um, the animation of that is uh, looks a bit different to kind of the rest of it, especially with like the yeah the yeah. ghost creatures. I think I liked it. Yeah, it was a different animation studio. What was it? Yeah, so it was a different animation studio that made that, and I'll get into a bit more reason why when we've covered the recap. It kind of like almost almost reminds me a bit of. Um, have you seen um, Across the Spider Verse? Uh, I've seen Into the Spider Verse, but not Across okay. the Spider Verse. So I think it's a bit more noticeable in the second one, but it's kind of in both. Yeah, it feels like almost every scene's got a different art style, but mm. in a really good way. Like it always works quite well. It kind of feels like this is almost like an early forerunner to that, where it's not quite captured the same kind of essence. Yeah. But there are occasions where it's worked, and I think this is one where it did work, where the different art style actually was quite striking. Yeah, and I think um, I think with that one as well, the focus is a lot more on the 3D effects. Yeah. And they really just went all out in trying to make them stand out as much as possible. Mm. And I think when the 3D effects are focused more on like the space environments, they genuinely look brilliant. Yeah. Like the gas fields look incredible, and that whole scene was incredibly beautiful. And I think that's something that's consistent all the way through it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you do get... Sometimes the jar, the jarring differences between two D characters in a three D environment, but for the most part, it's quite a visually striking. Yeah, I, I would, I, I would agree. I think um, it's not perfect by any means, but yeah. I can appreciate they've tried something different, and yeah. I think for the most part, I do like it. Yeah. So, um, you know, we we have we have some wonderful pep talks from uh, Corso about um, you know how what Kale's dad meant to him and what the, the kind of man that he can be. Yeah. You know, this is like the motivational talk that the hero needs to kind of push him forward. Yeah, the Uncle Ben scene. Yeah, the, yeah. Which is kind of rendered a bit mute <laughs> when 
also turns out to have betrayed them. Yes. Out of nowhere. Yeah. What do you what do you think of that? I thought it was rubbish. <laughs> yeah. It's so for quite a lot of the film, Corso's kind of shown to be very supportive of Kale and very keen to try and find the Titan in order to save the human race. So it kind of comes out of left field a bit when he suddenly turns out he's working with the Dredge mm. to get a lot of money for finding the Titan for them. And at no point in the film is it alluded to that that's what he's doing. No. Because if that was the case to begin with, why did the Dredge send their own guys to find Kale on that space space station? Mm. And then why did they try to abduct Kale on the planet? And then why did he try and rescue him? Yeah, and then why did he try and rescue him from there? It's... Well, I think we said while we were watching... It kind of feels like that scene where he did get kidnapped. Yeah. That could have been worked in a way where it starts showing hints at him being a betrayer. Mm. But like maybe he's got to start, carry on playing a part or something along those lines. It feels like yeah. there was something they could have done yeah. and they just didn't. And again, it kind of almost gave it the feel of um, they're making it up as they go along and they needed a twist for the sake of a twist. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think I agree with you there. It's, uh, it's just... Such a weird betrayal. Yeah, you know, it, like for the and uh, from this point, he's almost a different character. Yeah, yeah. Like it's it's not like a natural change or something that you've seen coming or you know not necessarily seen coming, but you when you look back on it, you can see hints at yeah, the actual yeah. person he is. He's just a different person mm. all of a sudden. You know, he's quite happy to try and like kill his own crew and like if like gun them down, and uh, yeah, now we've got another antagonist. Yeah, throwing it here. It. Yeah, it kind of feels like the film couldn't quite understand the idea of shades of grey. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, so subtle. He will. Yeah. Or people are like, oh, he's this guy's um this this guy's very good and now he's very bad. Yeah. There's no in between. <laughs> so uh Cal and Akima end up escaping the ship. Yep. Uh which now creates uh, a race for the Titan. And the main part of that is uh Kale and Akima now need to get themselves a ship. And they've ended up on a human drifter colony, which gives Kale a new perspective around human life. Isn't it wonderful? Almost like he was alluded to earlier. Yeah, winky, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Fair uh, enough. You should be alluding. So yeah, that's fine. But like, <laughs> <laughs> and then we get, and then we get a um, an- another montage scene of them getting their new spaceship ready to go, and so starts the the real race for the Titan. Um, so then after this, we get to the ice fields, which yeah. I have to say, visually. Is one of probably the most impressive things in the film. In general, I I, I like the ice field. Yeah, yeah, it looks absolutely fantastic. I feel like, and I think the the whole animation of that sequence is brilliant. Yeah, you know, they almost like really stepped it up mm. in this section mm. of the film. I think it's great all the way through, but I think they really went all out on making that look as impressive as possible. Yes, yeah, yeah. I thought as well. I I quite liked when they're trying to you know escape the ice field. Yeah, and then he's trying to like guard the exit. I like the fact they used the reflections. To yeah, Austin, that's incredibly well done. Yeah, yeah, really, really well done. The animation for that. Um, so yeah, we get our chase sequence through the ice fields between uh, Kale and Corsco's crews. Um, yeah, basically trying to like have a race to Titan. Yeah, uh, and in the process, Kale is able to get a head start on Corsco, and they find the Titan first. Or the Death Star, as you <laughs> when you saw it. It does look like it. <laughs> look at that moon over there. Look at that's that moon. That's no moon. That's no moon. 
so now that they've um, they finally reached the Titan, yeah, they can try to um, uh, you know try to understand what its purpose is. Mm-hmm. You know, what is it really here for? And obviously, they find loads of like DNA samples of lots yeah. of different aliens, and then a, a recording from Kale's father, Mister Tucker. <laughs> That's what they should have called Mr. Tucker. Yeah. It explains that the Titan is able to build humanity a new planet. Yeah. A new home. And it's fine. It's it's fine. Um and I know this is probably nitpicking because it's okay. still it's still quite a cool idea for shit. But yeah. they're in the infinite expanse of space with lots of other different alien races. Mm. Wouldn't it have been easier just to go and find another planet? They kind of get in a way because they're not just saving humanity, they're saving whales and bats and animals in general. I don't know why I picked whales and bats too. You picked the two coolest out. Oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I get it from that regard. I get that it's supposed to be what, like a floating genetic Noah's Ark. Yeah. I think in general that kind of is fine for the film like it makes the actual storyline which is incredibly convoluted yeah the actual basis of it is quite it's now a bit more straight yeah so yeah no good point but that's a good way of looking at it maybe i'm nitpicking a bit too much but also at the same time it does make you wonder how they messed up the middle part of this film so much yeah (laughs) it's uh i mean we will talk about my theories around that later on but okay um Corsco Corsco's able to kind of catch up with them. Yeah. And he goes onto the ship with Preed and feels that the other two members, Goon and Sif, are becoming too much of a problem. So uh Preed decides the best way to get rid of them, to blow them up. Yes. <laughs> PG. <woo>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the confrontation when uh Corsco interrupts Kale's message, we find out. The preen is going to betray them. <laughs> We've got a double betrayal. It's like because I don't understand, you know, because by the looks of it, Preed was with Cor- Corsco the whole way through, yeah, and was going to be was probably part of the plan to get a lot of money for helping them, yeah. So why? What's the need to betray Corsco at this point? Because he's essentially doing what Corsco was going to do anyway. It just seems like an unnecessary betrayal. I don't know. Is it because he's a human, maybe? They just or, wanna, uh, well, I think he, he's just in it for the money. I think he, there doesn't seem to be any speciesist things <laughs> in this film, apart from near the start. But, um, yeah. But then, ultimately, that just results in his him getting his neck broken. <laughs> yeah. But as, uh, what's his name, suddenly turns back to a nice person. Well, not quite yet. Not quite yet. No, but... they're alluding. You're alluding. Uh, ahead. alluding yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Corsco ends up taking um uh ends up taking out Pre by breaking his neck in a PG rated film, throwing him down the stairs where he ragdolls to the floor. Um, and then proceeds to have a fight with Kale over trying to get hold of the ring, the yeah. ring of power, <laughs> the ring of power. <laughs> and this results in court. Uh, Corsco falling off a ledge and Kale trying to stop him from falling. At which point he falls and somehow falls in a horizontal way because he's able to break his fall by catching hold of a wire. But Kale can't see this happen. So the only way that I can think that he's able to do this is if he literally falls like horizontally underneath the, underneath the platform. Or something he's got, like, like you know, like uh, those flying 
like he's got a wingsuit. Yeah, grab yeah. <laughs> <Right> onto it. <laughs> so KL obviously thinks that Costco is dead now. Yeah, and then um, uh, he hasn't got time to warn because they're interrupted by the dredge turning up. Mm. So yeah, the dredge start attacking the Titan in in an attempt to blow it to pieces. So um, Kale, despite the fact that he's a uh, like a, a salvager, knows yeah. a little bit of techie stuff, thinks that the best way to charge the Titan in order to get it working again is to reverse engineer the system so that it sucks in the energy that the dredge are made out of. Well, come on, that's self-explanatory. I mean, yeah, well, um, they're a thousand years into the future, so that might just be as simple as, like, electricity to us now. Yeah. It's like, oh, no, yeah, we can reverse engineer a system to <laughs> charge, charge its reactor by stealing the energy of a living being. <laughs> Mate, yeah, that's like, they teach you that in, like, fourth grade or something. <laughs> Easy. Yeah, simple maths. Um... So then we get the defense sequence where they're trying to stop the dredge from uh, taking out the ship. And Kale uh, needs to go and repair one of the breakers, yes. which has become jammed. So this involves him jumping out onto the, the hull of the Titan whilst getting peppered by dredge fighters. And Sif and Akima are trying to cover him using the, the guns. Yes. And then out of nowhere, Goon, who we presume died in the explosion... Comes, t- comes out totally fine, flying around the Valkyrie, blowing up enemy <laughs> spaceships. Because <laughs> apparently every character in this is able to fly a, a starship yeah. nowadays. I also love the way that he's never been shown to be that kind of character. No. Really. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He never alluded to that that's the kind of person that he is. No. So he might be, he might just be an absolute psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> a murdering psychopath. Do like a, a sort of like a spin off of just him just murdering everyone. Yeah. <laughs> It used to be like a the Alien SAS or something. Yeah. Of course, that film, with the way this one is, it would just be a U, but he's just killing everyone. Yeah. <laughs> he's killing aliens, it's fine. It's, yeah, it's absolutely fine. Yeah. yeah, if as long as it's aliens, then the rating's okay. Yeah, aliens or robots, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Although, um, there's complete, complete tangent, but uh, you know, you know Mortal Kombat? Yes. So when people want to show like some of the fatalities and stuff on YouTube, so that they can monetize the videos, they pick the characters that don't have red blood. Huh. Because if they don't have red blood, then it's not seen as violent. So it gets past the censors. So they end up finding there's like at least one character whose blood color is not red. And then so then even though they get gorily splattered everywhere, um, it's totally fine. It gets past all the censors. <laughs> It does seem like one of those hypocritical things they did. Yeah, yeah like, I, I see that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, Kale is obviously trying to save the breaker, ends up getting pinned by one of the dread ships. And then Corsco appears, <laughs> uh, pointing a gun at him. But then he shoots the dredge instead and has had a change of heart. Maybe we can beat them after all. He's a good man now. He's a good guy now. He's changed his mind. All it took was for, you know, him to be betrayed. Yeah. And now he's good, and it doesn't matter. He tried to kill those people. All of that's forgiven. <laughs> like, well, there's, there's there's no... Once again, one there was no reason for his... Uh, you know, for much of the betrayal anyway, or, or like the personality change. But there's also no reason for him to have a change of heart either. Nothing's happened that's made yeah. him think, oh, okay, no, we can beat them now. What what is he... What is it that he thinks... Was, has happened that he thinks he can beat them. I don't know. Like, also, like, 
I know like they would have had to change the middle part of the film, but they should have changed that anyway, let's face it. Yeah. <laughs> Why not just get to the end and then just have the betrayal there, just have one of them do the betrayal? Because that would make yeah. sense. And that character, what's his name? The uh, hyena-like guy? Oh, what, Preed? Yeah, why not just have him do the betrayal at the end? Yeah. And that would have made more sense, because at least it was alluded to a little bit. He was shown as a nasty character. Yeah, you, um, it's much more alluded to than having a series of betrayals yeah. that you know, kind of don't really make sense in the context of it all. Mm. Um. But yeah, he ends up helping him and um, sacrifices himself in order to get the breaker working. Yeah. And Kale's able to get back to the ship to activate the main reactor to start up the Titan just as the alien mothership fires the death laser, which was shown to blow an entire planet up. Yes. By the way. Yeah, yeah. But the energy is absorbed. The the dredge mothership is sucked into the Titan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which starts the process of building the planet. And once again, we get a really, really good um, CGI scene where this new planet gets constructed out yeah. of stuff. <laughs> Rocks and it's, stuff. The, yeah, it uses a, an incredibly powerful scientific device called magic. Yes, yeah. <laughs> to, um, to construct this new planet. And then we get our final one of the final scenes of the film where Kel and Akima standing on this new world uh, in the rain, romantically. Um, yeah. Being happy that they're on this new Earth. Planet Bob. <laughs> and they go to kiss, and she goes, no. She goes, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm not. It's not like that. It's not actually been alluded to at all. <laughs> You've been in love with Goom this whole time. <laughs> oh, that would be so funny. Oh, no. I'm sorry. I'm married to Goom. <laughs> Yeah, and then the uh, final scene of the film is the people from the Drifter colony slowly floating their way a, way into the new planet. No idea how they found it. All humans just have this beacon that goes off. Yeah, they've got like an Earth beacon. They just have like a homing beacon that gets... They're like they're like um, the racing pigeons. Yeah, yeah. Home, homing pigeons. They just never where to go. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be great if there was just like a traffic jam on the way to Earth. Just yeah. like, come on, yeah. get down. Come on, I want to go sit down on the planet now. Come on. And uh, yeah, that's that's the film. That's our ending. Well, it'd be quite funny because you know they're in space. They've got all of these colonized planets and space stations and all this stuff. Yeah, they get to Earth and then it's just like a empty space. Yeah, you know, well, like you know, like in Madagascar where like the the, the penguins finally get back to the Antarctic. And yeah, they just sit there. Oh okay. yeah. Well, this sucks. Well, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> that would be such a good ending scene if that was in there. Well, this sucks. Well, I mean, when they when the camera pans out of them on Earth, obviously this is a film from the two thousands. Mm. The landscape does look like something out of like an Xbox or PlayStation Two game at the time. It looks like the scenery from Halo or something. I, I literally had I can even think of the map in Halo. Yeah. It like <laughs> the best one from the first Halo game. Yeah, it was a very yeah. So that's the only CGI that looks very dated. I feel. yeah, the stuff that's actually in space. Yeah, I feel. Holds up really well. And for, yeah, we've reached the end of the end of the film. Ten out of ten. Credits roll. It's just uh, Chef's <laughs> kiss. Beautiful. Yeah. Um. So, um, as I said at the start, yeah, this was a film very much of my childhood. I remember going to see this film in Southampton yeah. at an Odeon cinema, and I've got very vivid memories of everything we did there. We went. To, uh, we had pizza at Pizza Hut. Me and my brother went into an arcade and played some games together. And then we watched the film in the cinema. And my little eight-year-old mind was completely blown away. 
Um, Sounds like a good day. Yeah. So when we got this on VHS, we used to watch this all the time. And I don't know how my parents honestly put up with us watching the same film over and over again. But we must have watched this like dozens and yeah. dozens of times. We all had that film, I felt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we adored it. We, we really did love it. But looking back, in hindsight... I still really like the film. Of course you do. Yeah. Nostalgia for it. I, the nostalgia saves this film for me. Yeah. It really does. Um, but what do you think, Peter, having never seen this film before? Um, it's okay. <laughs> I'd, I'd probably give it a five out of ten. Yeah. Um, it's way too convoluted. Mm. Needed more character development. Yeah. Um, I think I, I, I literally said, and then you, you said I was correct, it, it felt like it had way too many writers. Yeah. Um, it, I, I think, like, it's very much the idea of, um, you know, the whole camel as a horse designed by committee. It had that yeah. feel to it. <laughs> I, I will say, though, like, the animation was, was really good. I yeah. like the animation. So I, think, so I think the saving graces of this film is the animation is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I think the, the combat, the 2D and the 3D aspects are both brilliant. Mm. And I think there's a lot of nostalgia for this 2D style that they had in the early 2000s. You know, that uh, there's quite a few films like you mentioned uh, Treasure Planet yeah. with the animation style. And then you've got Atlantis, um, yeah. Prince of Egypt, Anastasia, which you've not seen. No. Um, all of this sort of style that s- still looks timeless nowadays um and for the most part the 3d effects still hold up now i feel yeah i like you say i think in the background when it's like the space scenes yeah so good the dredge i thought i get what they were trying i don't think they worked it looks like playstation 2 but then doesn't it yes it very much does yeah, yeah it looks like you're something you're playing in the playstation 2 game mm. and then some of the the land the more landscapes where they do like more familiar settings like being on planet earth and that they look a bit Bit dated, but still, but they still did a very good job. And considering you got there on time, time yeah. yeah, all its time, I think it's just incredible, like really, really pretty. But I definitely agree with you when it comes to the story and the pacing. Yeah, I, I think I think the way I put it, like obviously I enjoyed it because I watched it with you know with a friend. Yeah, yeah thank you. <laughs> but uh, if I was watching this on my own, I think I'd have either turned it off or been on my laptop by the end of the film. Yeah, if I'm honest. There's there's a lot of points where you can definitely lose lose it, and I know you said several times when we were going through it that I don't know what's happening. I've lost I've lost what's going on. I, I don't really know what's going on anymore. I, I also feel... Well, like you said one thing that I agree with, but I, I will say I think there was too many named characters. Because generally when you're trying to, like... I only really know from creative writing because I do story writing. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Generally, if a character only has a couple of lines, you're not supposed to name them because it gets a bit too confusing. The yeah. reader does know who they're supposed to remember, who they're not supposed to remember. So it's just a way of, like, simplifying that. Yeah. And I got the feeling they went a bit too... Had too many named characters. Well, the way... And I... I I said this to you earlier. Um, the way the kind of crew is set up, so I think the characterization of all of the crew is, is really good, but it suffers from the fact that it's con- it's condensed into an hour and 30 minutes of film. Yeah. I so you don't have the time to explore these individual characters. Mm. And I feel the way that the film, that said plot elements happen in the film, it's almost like it should have been a TV series. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like the, the the first episode of them escaping the spaceship, mm. you could have done a whole episode of, on that, essentially. And then you could have had one 
an episode of them going to the gas planet, mm. and then an episode of them escaping the energy ship. And I, then... Yeah, I even think when you get down to on Earth, having an episode where you see his life and his dad, you get attached to these characters before. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, it, it gives you more, a, a little bit more investment. Mm. Um, I mean, you should already be invested in, in watching Earth get blown to pieces but <laughs> there's nothing i find important to right. um <laughs> apart from pyramids <laughs> god no the pyramids <laughs> it's fine they still um yeah the one thing they're just floating through space and they go they, they, they just pick them up to bring them back to planet earth come on we, we all know the fairies they're spaceships <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, my my favorite my favorite theory about the well conspiracy theory about the pyramids is they were built by dinosaurs. It's actually a legitimate well not a legitimate, but it's a conspiracy oh. theory that's out there. Oh brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so um I think I, I agree with you. I think it's a very mid film. I think it's yeah. uh, it's a film that I am very whelmed by. Mm. Um it's it's very pretty on the eyes. I like the characters, but the story is well kind of all over the place, and the pacing is absolutely terrible. I think this film for you is probably what the He-Man Masters of the Universe on this film. The nostalgia just yeah. just goes through your goes through your blood. Also, yeah. I, just looking back at it now, I don't know why, I just find it funny. I used to find it so cool when I was younger. But whenever he swings a sword... <laughs> why is Dolph, that's the Dolph Lundgren noise, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> I saw every action star from the 80s seems to have a noise, like Stallone and Schwarzenegger and all that. So, um, yeah, so Titan AE was a film produced by Fox Animation Studios, mm-hmm. which um, pretty, the first film they made was Anastasia, which, once again, you've not seen. That's another Don Bluth movie. Okay. Um, so Anastasia's a really good film, and I'd recommend you watch it it's uh, very enjoyable it's very similar art style to this uh you know a combination of like 2d uh, not too much 3d for in there only a little bit yeah but no, much more focused on 2d i think that's kind of a better way of doing it though yeah. using subtle 3d yeah and i think it, it works really well with that and it's it's really good and i would recommend watching okay. anastasia when you get the time um so that was the first film they made and that was a box office success did really well you know it was very critically successful and then um Titan AE was uh, pitched 20th Century Fox, and uh, as the new as the new film, so it was originally meant to be live action. Yeah, that's what it was pitched as was to be a live action. That would have been awful. Yeah, <laughs> if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when it first came through, obviously the first thing you used to do is need to write the script for it, and it went through I think three different writers. And one of them is obviously Josh Whedon, where we can see some of his influences in like the ensemble cast sort of thing. Yeah, they were kind of all steam ahead with this film. This film, and it was given thirty million dollars uh, to kind of start development. Um, and they spent thirty million dollars, literally doing nothing. So, it's cost them thirty million dollars, and no progress was made. So eventually, they decided to um, try and hire someone else to try and like helm the project. Bear in mind, like this. What? So this film is now twenty three years old. Yeah. Now, even with inflation, I think you could make a good film with $30 million. Not like the <laughs> highest budget one, but like you can make a good film with that. Yeah. So, um, the original director was one Art Vitello, who was previously known for working on things such as the Tiny Toons Adventures. And um, 
The Adventures of the Gummy Bears. Um, and Gallivants. Whatever Gallivants is, I have no idea. I, I'm not going to lie, I feel like these are aimed at different people than me. Yeah. <laughs> so, Art Patello uh, spent $30 million doing basically nothing, at which point he was sacked from the project. And this is where Don Booth was brought in to take over the helm. So... Don Bluth uh, obviously came back to uh, the Fox Studios in order to try and like helm this project, and they were given a budget of about seventy-five million dollars okay. to create this film. So there was no, there were no current like scripts by the looks of it in progress. So that nothing was actually made by this point. So they literally started from scratch, and they were given uh, eighteen months. To create a full film, right. Anim- scripts, animation, voiceovers, yeah, everything, for it to be in cinema. So, because of budget constraints with Fox, the director of the studios, uh, a Mister Mechanic, what a great name, Mister Mechanic. Yeah, <laughs> he was um, Bill Mechanic. He was um, basically told that uh, he'd have to start letting staff go unless they started working on Titan AE. So a lot of staff who didn't actually have experience working in science fiction, Don Bluth in particular, who'd never done science fiction previously, okay. were kind of obliged to do it. So they were given $17 million to kind of take over the project. Um, and the focus was predominantly around computer-generated animation, which Don Bluth and Goldman were not experienced in. So a lot of the scenes were kind of done with like handmade props. Uh, they brought over a lot of stuff from the Anastasia film to work on it. Yeah. And uh, during the production, Fox Animation Studios started to get lots of cutbacks. Right. Because I think people could see the writing on the wall with this project. Okay, yeah. So they lost over 300 staff during the production of this film. I'm not going to lie. It, I'm not that surprise because it does have that kind of feel for yeah. <laughs> and as a consequence of that a lot of the animation was actually outsourced to independent companies <laughs> and you know when we were watching the film i mentioned that the scene with the the space ghosts and yeah that, uh, was done by a completely different company yes quite a lot of the scenes were done by different companies again you can sort of see in the art style like how it's different it's Mm. not that surprising i suppose yeah like the opener where the planet gets blown up was by a different company um and do you want to know who that company was uh who did the blowing up of the planet Mm -hmm. is it one that i know yeah you'll know the company go on it's not pixar or something no blue sky studios who did ice age oh okay So, Blue Sky did the animation for what they call the Genesis scene, where the planet gets blown up. Yeah. And they also did the animation for when the planet gets built. This must have, this can't have been that long before Ice Age, thinking about it. Yeah. So, I'll get onto that in a minute. Okay. (laughs) So, when it was released in cinemas, it got a very lukewarm reception. And, yeah, surprising, eh? And only made $30 million on a budget of what they predicted to be at least $90 million, not including marketing expenses. Not great. Um, I think the main problem with it, and you said it whilst we were watching it, is I don't know who this film is for. Yeah, I, I'd agree. Because yeah. it sort of, half the time feels like it's a children's film, and then the other half, it's got aliens blowing up, it's got weird sexual vibes. Yeah, it's, it's got blood, it's got like a very scary dream sequence where yeah. someone gets shot in the chest. Um, and I think at the time, particularly in terms of like adult animation, I don't really think it was 
that it wasn't really a thing. No, that's something that's sort of a bit more modern. It's become more prominent, like in more recent times. But back then, I think it just it didn't have an audience. Yeah, because I've sort of noticed it, like you know, growing up, if you had cartoon, you thought instantly, oh, that's yeah, it's for kids. Yeah, but Um, then, but then the film really isn't for kids. I would say, despite the fact I was an impressionable eight year old and thought it was incredible. I, I don't think it's for kids. I think I I'm, I think my parents would have been quite twitchy if they see me watching this. <laughs> so, um, yeah, as a consequence of its really poor performance uh, in the first week, I think it only made something like sixteen million in the first week, and then massively dropped off after that. Um, the studio Fox Animation Studios was shut ten days after it was released. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got I've just got to like point something out, right? Yeah. My nostalgia film was He-Man, which, along with Superman Quest of Peace, closed down a studio. Yes. Your nostalgia film is the Titan AI, which closed down a studio. What is it with kids and liking films that close down studios? <laughs> Maybe we just like the evil that radiates from them. Like <laughs> the, bad, the bad things that they've caused. So, yeah, this, this film was essentially the death of Fox Animation Studios. And more importantly, this was the last feature-length film that Don Bluth has ever done. Really? Yeah. So, Don Bluth had made some absolute bangers, which you need to watch, Peter, as listed at the start. Um, And this would would be the last feature-length film he would ever make. That's kind of sad. Um, He's still alive. He's still going. Yeah. Um, And there's been rumours that he's working on something. But, yeah, he's not made anything since. Hmm. And... um, it's a bit, it's a shame, really. They need, they need to do start. We need to start doing like a bit of like a poll of what's going to come out first. Yeah. So John Blue film, mm. the next Shrek, uh, the next Elder Scrolls. Yeah. Or I think one more. Uh, the second coming. The second coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. Uh, as a consequence of that as well. Uh, Fox Animation Studios was actually working on quite a few unreleased projects. So there were lots of different films that were kind of in the pipework for them. Um, I'm just going to quickly find yeah. a few of them. So, it's a huge list of cancelled projects. So, there's a few that, um, uh, yeah, so there's a few that you probably haven't really heard of. They were doing one called Betty of the Jungle, which is based off of. Oh, of course. Yeah, <laughs> which is the. It's Described as a sexy George of the Jungle. And they missed out on that. Damn. They were making a Dracula picture. Um, They were making a film called Rhapsody, which I think was based off of a a book series, not the song. Um, Yeah, so they were working on several different number of these pictures. The two that you might know is they had started work on a film called Ice Age. Oh, okay. And originally Ice Age was going to be a traditionally animated film. I don't know if it's controversial or not, but I actually think Ice Age is one of the best animated films ever made. I agree with you. Yeah, I, yeah the original Ice Age is brilliant. So much. Like, it's like, the others, not so much, but the first one's got so much soul as well. Like, Yeah. It's, yeah, Ice Age is fantastic. And then another film, which is uh, nowhere near as impressive because the film's actually rubbish, right. uh, Over the Hedge. I actually quite like Over the Hedge. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as good as Ice Age, nowhere near. Right. I agree. Yeah, which eventually get got picked up by DreamWorks Animation further down the line. Okay. So, yeah. Um, 
that's that's the legacy of Fox Animation Studios. It made a total of two theatrical releases and one direct-to-video direct release, and then died. What a <laughs> legacy. Yeah. And uh, so this is the film of my childhood that not only destroyed an entire studio, but essentially ended the career of one of the best animated directors of all time as well. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I'm glad you were here to enjoy it with me. Yeah, we need to think what we're doing next. We've yeah. covered all of our all of our bases now, really. Well, I think... Um, we talk about our Zorro idea. Yeah, well, we have the Zorro idea, and uh, I think, we're, considering you've not watched any of Don Bluth's stuff... Potentially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are some masterpieces. Okay, there. I'll take your word for it. Yeah, but... uh, most of the films are absolutely brilliant. Okay. Like, I cannot believe you've not seen Land Before Time. Heard of it. It's I, such a good film. I don't even know what it is. I don't even know what genre it is. Dinosaurs. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So thank you very much for um, coming and sitting through that with me. I thought you were going to say thank you for coming on my podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, well... Yeah, or let, letting me torture you on your own podcast. <laughs> You're most welcome. No, it was a, it was a lot of fun. Um, like I say, I wouldn't have watched this film otherwise, so that's yeah. something. Yep, thank you for uh, suggesting it. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. <laughs> um, I won't be insulted if you don't, didn't enjoy it, Pete. Don't worry. <laughs> no, but um, yeah. Yeah, cool. I think that about... Brings an end to the... It's sort of a weird transition to me then trying to take over again. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, thank you for uh, hosting this podcast, I should say, for the most part. Yeah. Hopefully we'll get you on again at some point in the nearest future. Mm -hmm. And thank you everyone for listening. <laughs>